No, hey, this is great. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, we've often referred to kind of this space as our living room. Uh, it's a good time for us as a family to get together, our extended families, to gather into the living room. And, and uh, it's a place where we can relax together and read together, study together. Uh, but it's more than just a kick back and relax kind of a place. Um, the, living, the living room is, is a place where we just relax. But when we come together as a body of believers, this is the opportunity for us to worship uh, together. And so if you came this morning with the mindset that you're coming to just grab coffee or coming to, to just hang out and uh, see a buddy, those are all great things, all great things that are part of the great community of faith that we have here. Um, but part of why we get together, the main reason of why we gather together is so that we can worship. And, and so I'm going to pray that we might just have a heart of worship together this morning and that we would uh, lift up our praise to the Lord. So let's pray. God, thanks so much for uh, this time. We all come with all kinds of different things going on in our life, uh, different motivations and reasons why we're here. Um, but wherever we're at, God, I pray that you would just help us to get to a place where uh, we can spend our time this morning in worship. Um, as we open up your word, we know that it doesn't return void. I know I am fallible. I am perfect in Christ, as those who are in here are perfect in Christ, but it doesn't mean that my words are without mistake. And so, Father, I'm going to pray that your word would land through your spirit uh, the way that you would have them to land, uh, that you would encourage us, that your word would um, equip us, that your word would challenge us. Um, Father, that you would do something in here that only you can do this morning. And so uh, this morning is yours. Use it however you want and grow us as we open up our Bibles to Ruth in Jesus' name now. Amen. Um, so we're starting a new series this morning in the book of Ruth. So go ahead and open up your Bibles uh, to Ruth. Um, if that uh, scares you a little bit, and you're like, well, I don't know where Ruth is, or you're new to your Bible, uh, start in the beginning. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and then you're going to land in Ruth. For some of y'all who have the, um, the, the app on your phone, you're like, man, I, I was there 10 seconds ago. I get you, all right? Some of us like to go old school, use some paper here, okay? Uh, so we're, if we're in Ruth, Ruth, um, just to give us a little bit of a context here, this is a time before Israel ever had a king that was on, on location, okay? We're starting in this series, and what we want to do is we want, we want to give it a little bit of a, a context so that we know what's going on throughout the whole, um, uh, what's going on in history, what's going on in redemption history with, with Israel and what God's been up to in and around uh, his people Israel as well. And so uh, right now, as uh, Ruth is being written, or the context that it's being written into, it's a time in history when the nation of Israel, they're supposed to be under <clears throat> the kingship of God, which is something that we would call a theocracy, right? That we are under the rule and the reign of God. It's different than a monarchy. A monarchy has a king on the throne. And a theocracy, God is king on the throne, and he is the one that rules. But instead of allowing themselves to be ruled and reigned uh, by God himself, what judge, the book of Judges tells us is that everybody at this time is doing anything and everything that they wanted. Uh, the way that they actually say it in the book of Judges, the author says is that everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. Saying, if I want to do it, I'll do it. If I don't want to do it, I won't do it. And what is happening here is that God, he has set his people apart. That you're going to be my people. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. You look up at the heavens, you see the stars. Your people are going to be more than the stars. That it's just going to be like what you're seeing there. I am going to bless you and multiply you and give you a land that you're not going to even be able to imagine. It's what we know as the promised land, right? He tells them, I'm going to bless you. And what he said is, is y'all are going to be my people. Okay, I'm from Southern Ohio, and so God says y'all in my book, okay? He says, y'all are going to be my people, 
You're going to be my people, and I am going to be your God. And this was great. This was great for about a second. Or, or maybe if we want to be generous to the people of Israel, it was good for maybe about a minute because the people of God began to rebel against their God. The one who says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, they begin to rebel against him. And the history of Israel at this point is all over the map. There are moments of just complete rebellion against God. We're just going to do whatever it is that we want to do. Thank you so much. And there are these little pockets of repentance with that pop up in the middle of all this rebellion too, where people, the people cry out to God and say, God, we're sorry. We're sorry for what we've done. Would you forgive us? We promise we're never going to do it again. We promise, we swear, we'll never do it again. Please forgive us. And the whole book of Judges is this window into this cataclysmic roller coaster ride that Israel is on. And, and if you want to understand the context of Ruth a little bit better, you have to dig back into Judges. Like, read through the Judges, and you're going to be able to see. This is the context that, that the author of Ruth is, is writing into. The, the story, the backdrop, it's marked by tragedy. It's painful. It's frustration. Not only frustration with the people, but frustration of God. Watching his people just do whatever it is that they want to do. And so when we look at the book of Ruth, we see that this story starts out of a place of pain. And the story, it really reminds me, if we want to put a kind of a picture around it, it reminds me of those old school tapestry kind of deals. You know what I'm talking about? Those things that you spend just hours on. I think we have a picture of it we can throw up there. Um, that you spend, just spend hours in there. You got yarn and needles and thread, and you're just like creating this beautiful picture, but it just looks like chaos and mess. And the, you hand it over to somebody. And you're like, hey, look what I've been working on. I did this for you. And they look at it and like, how long did you spend on that? Because this looks terrible. And you're like, no, no, wait, hold on, hold on. Flip it over. And when you flip it over, all those strings and all those chaos, uh, it's still there, but it, the strings and that chaos was necessary in order to perform this beautiful picture that you had been working on. And if you keep it flipped over on the backside, you have no idea the beauty that's on the other side. And so you say, flip it over and look at what's happening there. This is what the story of Ruth is like. It's like this painful and messy situation, cords and string all over the place, and you're wondering where on earth is God in the midst of all this? But when you flip it over, you're really going to see that God is making beauty out of tragedy. He is taking pain and he's giving it purpose. He's doing something in the middle of this. And maybe you can relate with some of that kind of stuff right now. Maybe you're in a season where you can just identify with pain and disappointment. Maybe even you're just bitter, man. Like you've been walking around and, and they, there is no joy in you. You're angry at everybody around you. You bump into somebody on the street like, bro, get off me. And, and, you, don't, and, and you don't even know where that's coming from. You're just angry and bitter. I mean, like everything, like the joy has been sucked out of your life. I had a pastor in New York. He would always talk about like, you, you walk around looking like you've been sucking on a lemon. It's like everything in your life, you're just mad and just bitter about what's going on and, and thinking that, man, there is nothing but darkness that's going to be coming out of my life. There's nothing but famine that is here and nothing that I can look forward to other than famine that's awaiting me. And the reality is that you need hope to show up in the middle of the darkness. You may, you may need God's word that came through Ruth more than you ever even thought you need God's word coming through Ruth. You need to see or be reminded that no tragedy that we walk through, no experience that we go through gets wasted. No pain goes unnoticed and no need goes unseen. God is always at work behind the scenes for the good of his people 
and for the glory of his name. I'm going to say that again. God is always at work, working behind the scenes for our good and for his glory. You're going to see all kinds of themes that are going to pop up throughout the book of Ruth. So many good things that we can focus on and talk about. But the main thing that overrides everything else in the book of Ruth is this thing right here. And I'm actually, I'm going to have us all say this together because we're going to keep coming back to this for the next four weeks. This is going to, we're going to say, hey, what's the main thing going on in Ruth? And we're going to say this right here. And so on the count of three, let's all do it together. One, two, three. God is always working behind the scenes for our good and for his glory. And so if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, what's the book of Ruth all about? You're going to be able to say, God is always working behind the scenes. And what he's doing behind the scenes, he's making sure that it's getting worked out for our good, and he's going to make sure that his name is going to be glorified. That's the theme of Ruth. He is behind the scenes, and he is at work. And so at some point throughout this series, and through your time that you're going to be spending in the book of Ruth over the next month, um, I am confident, not in my preaching ability, but I am confident in God that he is going to take what you've been looking at with this strings and mess all over the place, that, that he's going to look at you and he's going to say, hey, turn it over. And once you look at the beautiful picture on the other side, because you're focused on all this chaos and mess, while I've been over here working behind the scenes, doing a masterpiece, this beautiful thing, and you need to just flip it over. So I'm confident that he's going to do that work in you. You guys with me? Okay. So let me pray one more time, and then we're going to kind of dig in here. <clears throat> God, you're able to take your word and multiply it. You're able to dig us into it and change us. You're able to encourage us with it. And that's what I pray this morning through Ruth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we uh, jump into the book of Ruth. And when you first jump in, you're introduced to these, uh, these key characters or main characters at the very beginning. And so uh, he starts off and he introduces Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Melon and Kilion. If you got a different pronunciation for those, praise God. And if you think that you say it better, praise God, let me know and I'll try it next week, okay? But he's got Elimelech, Naomi, and he's got two boys, okay? That's how we're going to refer to him from now, the, 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 the two boys. They're born and they're raised in a place called Bethlehem. I think you're probably familiar with Bethlehem. But ironically, Bethlehem, it actually means house of bread, that, that's what it means. It means house of bread. But right now in Bethlehem, it's everything but a house of bread because they are experiencing something called a famine. And so the house of bread right now actually has no bread going on inside of it. And so I, I don't know how I would react if I were in the middle of a famine and I couldn't find food. And so, like, we can easily react to Elimelech and be like, dude, what are you doing? But Elimelech, in this, and, and throughout, at the beginning of the chapter one, he is trying to figure out, how am I going to navigate through this famine and chaos in my life? I, I know, like, I, I don't know how I'd react, but I'd try to do something. I'm going to, like, like, fighting for bread on the street or something like that because I like to eat and I like to live. And those two things kind of go together, right? And so if it's, necessary to, if it's necessary to have food to live, I would figure out how to try to go and get food. Now, you know, like over the past, uh, this past year, what it was like when, when, there, and when people were afraid there was going to be a toilet paper famine. You all remember that? Like people went nuts. Like you mean, like, we're not going to be able to buy toilet paper. People are buying toilet paper all over the place. And you go to the, the, the supermarket, like, man, there's nothing here. What are we going to do? Imagine if you were in the middle of a food famine and you've got nothing. How are you going to react to that? Elimelech is trying to figure out how am I going to get food for my family. And so because of the famine, he takes his family and he heads to a place called Moab. Now, 
We read Moab, and we don't think well, this is that big of a deal. But Moab, for the people of Israel, this has instant connotations. And you're going to see through the book of Ruth that this thing is soaked with Israel's pain, but it's, all, it's also soaked with promise. And Moab is a reminder of the pain of Israel, of the frustration and the thorn in their side. Um, so we read Moab, we don't have a context for it, but Israel knows that God has he's always told his people, follow me and I'm going to provide for you. It may not look conventional, like I may have to airdrop you some food out of heaven, I may need to drop some manna and send just a crazy amount of quail into your life. It may not look like what you were expecting, but I'm always going to provide for you, I'm going to take care of you. But Moab has historically been an enemy nation to Israel. It's been a place of frustration. It's been what we would call enemy territory. And on top of that, this is a place that was a constant reminder of the sin that it was birthed out of. Moab actually gets its start in Genesis chapter 19. You guys remember um, a guy named Lot? You got Abraham and Lot, and you got Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we, we know Sodom and Gomorrah gets toasted. God deals with Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot is one of the guys who gets to escape. And he escapes off into, uh, into the hills, and he's in a little cave. And he's holed up into this cave with his two daughters. And his two daughters are seeing the chaos that's happened down here. And they're like, everybody just got smoked. We don't have anybody to marry. If we don't have anybody to marry, that means we can't have any babies. And so they're like, well, what are we going to do? And guys, this is a crazy story. This is a ridiculous story. But, but this is in here, okay? What his daughters decide to do is they get their dad drunk. They get him wasted. And while he's passed out, they proceed to sleep with their dad. And there's this incestuous relationship that's taking place there. And that's just downright wrong, right? This is messed up. Somebody say, that's messed up. That's me yes, this is messed up. This is not how this is supposed to work. But what happens in this scenario, and this is how like, you know that Scripture, like one of the reasons that you know Scripture is true, right? It's, it's not like we try to like round all the corners that, that, are, that are rough. Like when you look at scripture, God is never trying to hide all the nasty, dirty marks on Israel. He actually shows up and he redeems those dirty marks. He shows up in our life and he redeems those things that we would rather hide. So in this moment, this is not a pretty moment of history, but yet this is what's going on. And so they sleep with their dad and they have, and one, and they both get pregnant. And one of the, the daughters her son, she names Moab, which literally means from father. And he became the founder or the originator of, of the Moabites. And the Moabites, from that moment on, they were a thorn in the flesh of Israel. And Moab, they, are, they embrace the sin from which it was birthed. And so if you were to travel around Moab at the time, you would just see everywhere you look. And this is a picture-perfect idea of everybody doing what is right in their own eyes, following after other gods, going after the lust of their flesh. They were living out their birth history. And so heading to Moab for the blessing of God's provision, this was like walking into the, the den of sin and expecting that somehow like God is going to bless what he said, I will never bless. And so they are going to this place looking for provision, expecting that God is going to send it to them there. But Moab was not the place for God's people. It was not the place for his people. Do y'all know this story already? You're kind of looking at me like, hey, tell us something we don't already know, right? Like, like this, this stuff is in here, and I love that it's in here, and it's fun when we get to kind of learn and we get to, to grow together here. But remember, the judges have said, 
this is what's going on. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. So this is the context. So we're in Moab, and you have Elimelech, this Jewish man from Bethlehem. His name actually means, my God is king. And now he's running to Moab with his wife and kids to go find hope and to find provision. And so he leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, in search of bread to be able to feed his family. They're in Moab so they can live. But the irony is, as he's in Moab, not only does he die, but his two sons die as well. You want to talk about a plan going south. This is not working out for Elimelech and and his family at all. But before they died, both of these boys, uh, they married Moabite wives in the land that they should have never been in. They marry Orpah and Ruth. I don't know if anybody in here is pregnant right now, but if you're considering Orpah, I just ask you, just reconsider. Just reconsider the name. Like, go with Ruth. Ruth's a good one, but like, let Orpah go. But they marry these, these two women, uh, Ortha, uh, Orpah and Ruth, Moabite women who, they weren't a part of the covenant promise of God. They weren't under his blessing, but Ruth and her actions and how she shows loyalty and how she allows God to work in her life, she's about to see God take her messy, her, her messy tapestry of a life, all that chaos, and to turn it over and say, look, look at the beauty that I've created out of your story. And so now you've got these three widowed women who are in Moab, and no matter what you think about the plight of women in the 21st century, how good it's been or how bad it's been, the reality of women who were, who were uh, left behind or widowed during this particular time in history, it was immensely worse than anything that we can imagine for our ladies today, okay? This was a dark time in, in the lives of all three of these women. The only hope that they have at this moment is to marry some wealthy dude if they're going to make it or to maybe have a son, and neither one of those prospects are looking very good for them because the, the idea is that they're infertile and infertility is not a, a thing that somebody wants to marry during this time. Um, they are middle-aged women and that wasn't something that somebody was wanting to take on during the time. And not only that, they were foreign. And if they were going back into Bethlehem, that would have been a mark against them as well. So this is not a pretty picture for them. And so I can't explain to you how deeply they would have felt, man, I am out of options. I have nothing else that I can do right now. Everywhere that I turn seems like a dead end, and everything has been ripped away from me. Anybody ever been there before? And you just feel like, I'm down to my last two options, and so I'm getting ready to choose, but then those last two options get pulled off the table. You're like, where am I going to go now? What am I, I'm, I was going to settle into one of those, but now I've got nothing left. I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how I'm even going to get to work anymore. And, and, and it's not just you're having to deal with not having, um, not having any clear answers to, to those problems. It, it, it's also, man, this burden is constantly weighing on your mind. When I go to sleep, I can't think about anything else. When I wake up, I can't think about anything else. I just don't know what I'm going to do right now. I need somebody to come in and help, but I don't even know who that's going to be. And so what Naomi concludes, she's my only hope. My, my only idea is to go back home. I've got to go back to Bethlehem. I've got to go back to where it all started. I've got to go back to where my roots are. So look at chapter 1, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
Verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. And so she is starting out on the journey, heading back, and she tells her daughter-in-laws, hey, don't you come back with me. She says, you stay here because if you come with me, there's nothing that's waiting for you. Your, your future is here in Moab. It's not with me back in Bethlehem. And, and, and I don't know why you think she would say this. Scripture kind of uh, hints at it here um, that, that maybe she's saying this because she feels that it's going to be better for them to stay in their birth mother's place because where she can't have any more babies. There's this idea of a, a liberate uh, marriage um, and a vow where once you get married, you are bound to that family. But she's like, there's nobody left. My husband's gone. Your husbands are gone. So you are released from this vow or this commitment to me. And so maybe she's looking looking at that and saying, there's no way that I can provide for you what you're going to need. So your best chance at survival is to stay back here in Moab. Maybe somebody might take kindness on you and marry you, and maybe you might not die of hunger. Maybe you might make it through what's going on in, in your life. And so the, but the girls, they kind of push back on, on, on this. And they say, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're going to go with you. We're, we're never going to leave your side. And Naomi says, no, you guys go home. And so Orpah, she leans in, she gives Naomi a kiss, and then she turns around and she goes home. She goes back into Moab. But Ruth, she acts differently than Orpah does here. Watch what uh, Scripture says in verse 14. When they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clings to Naomi. There's a, there's a different response between Orpah and, and uh, Ruth. Ruth's like, I'm, I'm never going to leave your side. I know you've said that, that I'm, there's a deep loyalty that you see in Ruth that you didn't see and that wasn't traditional in the land of Moab. You're going to see this uh, pop up constantly as a theme in the book of Ruth too. There's a deep loyalty that not only she has with Naomi, but she's going to have a deep loyalty with God too because there's going to be a transition point in in her life in in just a moment. So there's this deep longing, this clinging to, and this loyalty that lies deep in Ruth, and she is loyal to the core to Naomi. And I I want you to hear her exact words in verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. I want you to know or to hear what what she's saying here. These words are a deep commitment. And and I would go even further to say that this is the moment as a Moabite woman who was likely decked out in jewelry and most likely had skin markings and piercings. This is the the things that would identify her as a cult pagan worshiper, the worshiper of the god Kamesh of Moab. This is likely who she was at this point in in her life. I would say that this was the moment where she gave up the worship of Kamesh and surrendered to Yahweh God. 
to God Almighty. This was the transition point in her life when she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. What she was saying is, I'm leaving everything else behind. Everything that I've ever known, I'm leaving it and I'm taking not only your family name, but I'm taking your God's name and I'm going to build my life uh, uh, around that. This is a promise that says, I'm with you into the grave where you're buried that's where I'm going to be buried. Now, Ashley and I, we've, uh, we've had a, kind of a morbid thought over the past 15 years, and, and maybe you've had this too. Um, we've traveled quite a bit in our lives, and you know, I know not everybody in here has been born and raised in Ashland. Some of you maybe have been born and raised in Nebraska, and some of you haven't, that maybe this isn't your place, and maybe you've had a thought like we've had too. Um, but we've, we've had this thought of like, man, if something were to ever happen to us, where would we be buried? right? Like, like where, where would we put our, our plots? Because for 15 years, we've been all over the place. I was born uh, in southern Ohio, and uh, it was great, but uh, when I was 18, um, or when I was 20, I graduated at 18, worked, and then I went off into the army. And, and so Ohio hasn't been like where I've put my roots down since I left. And so that doesn't feel like home to, to me. Ashley, she's a, um, uh, an army kid, and so she's got roots all over the place, or she's got no roots anywhere, and she's got nowhere where she would say, well, that's really my, my home. And so for 15 years, we've just kind of had this question, where on earth is it that we would put our roots down and be buried? And some of y'all, like, like you say, I know exactly, like my, my mama and daddy, they're buried right over here, and we've got a plot for them, and I put my plot right down beside them, and grandma and grandpa are there, great grandma and grandpa are there, and we're just, we're just kind of in this all together. But for us, we're like, where, where, where on earth are we going to get buried? And I don't, I don't say this to, to be weird or try to get some kind of, uh, you know, affectionate heart tug from you guys. But for 15 years, like we, like, you know, or I guess for 12 years, 11 years, we've just kind of wondered that. But over the past few years, we've said, no, like we know where we're going to be buried. We're going to be buried with our people. Like we've looked for our people for so long and we said, these are our people. You guys are our people. So where you get buried is where we get buried. Where you go is, is, where, is where we go. And like we've had to wrestle through that kind of stuff. And this is what Naomi, Ruth, is saying to her. She said, I've given up everything else to be loyal to you. And, and, and the God of heaven, I'm going to be loyal to him. My burial place is going to be in the land of the God of the living. My burial place is going to be with you in Bethlehem. So could we just get going now? Could we just go back home? Let's go. She said, I'm leaving everything behind. Let's go home. And so Ruth and Naomi here, these two widowed women, they come back. And when they come back, they're coming home to, to Bethlehem together, not certain of what's going to be coming their direction, hungry and destitute, not knowing where the food's going to be coming from tomorrow, not knowing where they're going to live, not knowing how they're going to pay their bills, not knowing if anybody is going to show them some type of loving kindness and welcome them into their family. Like, they don't know what we know about Ruth. They don't know the end of the story. They are just going in and saying, hopefully somebody will take care of us. It's a lot like a college students who are coming back home on break. Hey, I'm coming home. Would you feed me? Would you take care of me? Would you give me a place to live? This is a little more ominous, though. Like, this is a rough situation for them. It's dark. It's emotionally dark. It's personally dark. Naomi feels like God has forgotten her, and he's dealt with her in an awful way. Naomi feels like the hand that she's been dealt isn't a hand that anybody should have been dealt. In fact, the name 
Naomi, it actually means pleasant. That's what her name means. But she's so raw and she's so disappointed with how things have shaken out in her life. She, she says, don't even call me Naomi anymore. Don't even think about calling me pleasant. That's the last thing I am right now. That's the last thing that I want to be known for right now. Go ahead and call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because that's what I am. That's who I've become. Because that's my life and that's the taste I have in my mouth right now. I am nothing but bitter. I'm bitter at my situation. I'm bitter at the people around me. I'm angry at the people around me. And if I'm being honest, I'm bitter at God. I'm mad at him. I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara. But look at verse 19. As you come back into Bethlehem, the whole town is just buzzing. So the, town, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi, is that you? Is it really you? Is it really you? Like, we heard you were coming back to town, but now that I've seen it with my own eyes, is it really you? There was this buzz going on in the town. Well, why is there this buzz? I mean, Naomi had lived there her whole life. She got married there. She had children there. Like, this was her place. This was her people. But then all of a sudden, she just kind of up and left. And when you're in a small community, and you just up and leave, like, that's headline news, right? That's the kind of stuff that makes the paper. Elimelech and his wife and their two sons, they've moved up, they've packed out, and they've headed out east. That makes the paper. But she is coming back, and the town's excited. But part of the buzz is that when she left, she left as a family of four. She had a husband, she had two kids, but now she's not coming back as a family of four. She's coming back as a family of two. Husband's gone, two boys are gone, and it's just her and her daughter-in-law. And so the buzz is, man, what's, what happened? What's going on? Like, why are you coming back with just you two? So don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. God's taken everything away from me. It's just so painfully obvious here that she, what she's walking back into Bethlehem with, regardless of what everybody else says or what everybody else thinks about her, she is walking back into to Bethlehem, and she feels hopeless and aimless in life. <clears throat> and loss does that to us, doesn't it? You lose somebody, and sometimes you don't know where to go from there. Um, the breadwinner, you know, kind of um, walks out or, or dies, and you're kind of left with all the bills, and you're left with trying to figure out all the files, and where do we go from here, and this does something to you. And you walk around, and you're just kind of aimless in life. It, you don't mean to. There's just a hollowness that happens because, you know, the things that, that we build our life around, they just kind of disappear. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, what now? And, and you know, we're not zombies, but we kind of walk around like zombies and just numb to everything. I'll go to work, but it's only because I, I've got to go to work. And you sit there and just punch in numbers until it's time to go home. Or you got to get the kids to school. You're like, oh, I'll get the kids to school, but you come home and you're just numb. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know where to go from here. The life has been sucked out of me. And the numbness just has this chilling effect on us and just leaves us kind of paralyzed. And we can identify with Naomi with loss when we just say, man, I feel like God's taken everything away from me. And then we say, like, the hand that I've been dealt, like, I should have never been dealt this hand. This is not what I should have to be dealing with right now. And to be quite honest, this is the kind of stuff that a lot of people will walk away from the faith for because we feel like God dealt us a hand that we didn't deserve. 
We feel like we're walking through pain that isn't necessarily reflective of, of who we think we are as people and that God would allow us to experience something like that. And the question that we end up leaving with is, where was God in all of this? Or where is God in all of this? And because we can't make sense over it, we just say, well, he must not carry, he must not be around, and so we walk away, not realizing that he's in the back of the scenes, that he is working out this tapestry of our life, that we have, that eventually he's going to say, flip it over, and you're going to see the beauty that he's been at work, but we can't see past the pain long enough to realize that he's doing something magnificent in our lives. And I get it, the pain is real, right? And that's, that's, what, that's what's so beautiful about Naomi, and we realize that she's not hiding anything because she doesn't try to church up her response to her pain. She doesn't try to, you know, walk into Bethlehem and say, man, I'm too blessed to be stressed right now. She doesn't walk in and say, God's going to work everything out for those who love him. Those things are true. God does bring peace. He does work out things. He does minimize stress. He does bring a level of comfort and satisfaction. He does work out all things together for those who love him. But the pain is real. Ruth is experiencing real pain. We experience real pain, and to try to act like we're not just doesn't make any sense. And so I love that Ruth is just so raw and honest here. She says, don't call me pleasant because I'm not pleasant. I am bitter and I'm mad. And maybe you can relate. And the season of life is just hard. And it feels like God is just against me. And what Naomi doesn't know, and what we may not know or maybe we've forgotten, is that God is working behind the scenes both for our good and for his glory. And nothing goes unnoticed, nothing gets forgotten, nothing gets uncared for. He is working this tapestry in the middle of all the strings and the mess and the chaos when it looks like nothing but darkness and, and madness. All of a sudden, God says, now take it and turn it over and look at what I've been doing. Look at this beautiful picture and we can finally see and say, oh, that's what you've been doing. That's what you've been up to all this time. I couldn't see it through the pain. I couldn't see it through the loss. I couldn't even see it through my own bitterness and frustration, but I see it now. And what's so hard sometimes is that we're still looking at the backside of the tapestry. We still see the chaos and the madness, and we never think that God could flip it over and say that there's going to be something good out of that. Or, or, or <clears throat> we're still waiting on him to say flip it over, or when he said flip it over, we look at it, and we're still mad and angry. We're still bitter that he allowed us to go through that, thinking that he would keep us away from anything hard to go on in our lives. And, and, and that ends up leaving, leaving us in this place of anger and bitterness and, and, and even to the point of wanting to walk away from it all. But there's some of us who've been on the other side of that. And we've heard God say, okay, now it's time to turn it over. And when you turn it over, you're just blown away about how he used your situation how he was using your story of pain to be the story of grace in somebody else's life. Not that it ever feels good to go through your own pain, but that you realize that somehow he was working it out for your good, but he was also using it for the grace and good of somebody else around you and for his, his glory. And he was asking you to turn that over. As a pastor, one of the coolest things that I get to do is, is sit in my office or be on a phone or sit down with coffee, and I get to hear stories of, of God's grace in people's life where where they've been to the point where they've said, okay, I turned it over and I saw this madness and this chaos and God was actually using this. This is, what, this is the blessing he brought in my life through this. This is the ministry that's risen up out of my situation that I never would have thought that God could have done. And I get the, the, the privilege of being able to hear some of those stories. And so this is what I would say that if you're, in the, if you're still in it, that just means that the tapestry's not done yet. 
God is still weaving strings in there. There is still work to, to be done. And he's about to say at some point in your life, turn it over and look at what I've been doing. Or he's, he's already said, turn it over and look. And he's saying, stop being bitter. Stop being angry. Because you need to see there's a bigger picture going on with this that, that you're not currently seeing on. And then I would say, he's also saying, saying hang on. He's about to turn it over, so, so hang on. And how would I know that? Look at verse 22. <clears throat> so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I want you to circle, underline, highlight, do whatever you can for those last few words there. At the beginning of the barley harvest, like, I've never underlined or circled anything like that. It doesn't even make any sense to me. Here's why this, this is why this is important. Because when they left Bethlehem, what was going on? They were in the middle of famine. Everything was falling apart. Life was chaotic. Life was a mess. Nothing changed when they left because when they go to Moab, it's chaos and madness too. But now when they're coming back to Bethlehem, this house of bread has become the house of bread again. They're walking back into the middle of the harvest. And this isn't something that's good, that there's not going to be anything to harvest. This is a full harvest where there is food everywhere. And so what's going on here is that God is at work. He's been at work behind the scenes. And right now in Bethlehem, in Judah, hope is rising. They don't know that it's rising, but hope is rising. And my prayer as we go through the book of Ruth is that as we begin to spend the next four weeks here is that as hope rises in Bethlehem, that if you're in a dark place and if you're in a bitter place, you're in an angry place, and you just mean, I don't know where God is in the middle of all this, that you're going to get to a place where as Bethlehem sees hope rising, in your situation, you begin to see hope rising. As you're in the middle of bitterness, that you begin to see, I don't have to be bitter. My, my bitterness can become joy again. It can become pleasant again. My anger could become something that God uses. My situation can become something that God uses because I'm going to hold on to the fact that although I can't see it, I'm still looking at the back of this thing. I have full hope that he is at work getting ready to flip this thing over. He's going to use all this mess and it's going to be, he's working behind the scenes for his good or for our good and for his glory. He's working behind the scenes for our good and for his glory. And he's going to be showing that to us throughout the next four weeks. And so what we've said as we're going through these, these series, through these books, is that we want to be people who read, listen, and respond to his words. And so some action steps for us is, you know, uh, for the next four weeks, I would say read Ruth at least once a week. Dig in, read it, and then as you read it, listen to what God has for you there. Don't just read it and get done with it and check the block, but read it and say, God, what do you have for me here? How do I see you in this book? How do I see your people in this book? How do I grow from this book? What do you want to encourage me with? What do you want to challenge me with? Where do you want to show up in my life? Where do you want to flip this thing over and let me see you at work? And so for the next four weeks, spend, uh, uh, spend some time in, in the book of Ruth. And then we'd say, uh, again, listen to it and respond to it. There is um, a, a family worship guide that we're going to send out every, every week this week or every week this month. And so if you're not on the app, um, get on the app. We're going to push that out to you so that you can, if you are the leader of your family, if you are in a roommate situation, if you are on a team and you want to go through the book of Ruth with somebody, you'll have questions, you'll have things that you can dialogue and talk about so that not only are you learning, but you're able to learn along with others. 
We're going to do the, the Ruth, um, or do the Spotify list again, um, the, 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 the playlist on Spotify. And so last, last month we did Haggai. This month um, we're putting up uh, some songs that go along with Ruth, so you can just enter into worship through song in that way too. And then I would say this for the last thing. If you are learning something from Ruth, if God is showing up in your life as you're reading or as you're sitting here uh, um, learning together as a body, share that with somebody. Don't keep that to yourself because you might be the linchpin that God wants to use to help somebody else flip over the story so they could see what else is going on in their life. So as you grow, bring people along with you by just having conversation. Share what God is bringing into your life. Sound good? All right, the main theme is God is working behind the scenes for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. God, it's just such a privilege to dive into your word together with my friends and my family. Father, it's a privilege to, um, to be used by you. I'm, like as I said, Lord, I'm, I'm not infallible. Your word is. And so would you take what you want to stick and through your spirit just make it stick in our lives. Father, over the next month, we want to study together. We want to learn together. And we want you to show up in ways that maybe we're not even expecting. Um, where we've been bitter, bring joy again. Where we've been angry and frustrated, um, bring levity there. Where we have been walking in darkness without hope, would you allow hope to rise in the midst of the darkness? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.